So, Jay, what's with the green mist blackmailing Gambit? Oh, that's Mary Purcell. He picked her up in Antarctica. Because she offered to help him? Because she was contained in a test tube labeled energy and he figured he could use some. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 439 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the beginning of the end of an era. And the beginning of an arc that maybe should have been three issues instead of six. I might even say two. So we are sadly getting to the end of Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly's runs on Uncanny X-Men and X-Men. Runs which, if you've been listening to the show for the last little while, you will note, we have by and large loved. Runs which decay precipitously as they approach their finales. We've talked about this before. So Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel were brought on after Scott Lobdell uh, very suddenly quit. Um, and since Chris Claremont, who was planned to be brought back in, was snarled up on a toy biz contract deal of some sort, uh, the two of them were hired. And then Marvel didn't want to fire them when Claremont was available. So they started out with grand plans for the X-Men, all these plots they were building up to, sometimes with foreshadowing involving a lot of birds. And they got to get a little ways into these, and then they were all basically aggressively curtailed by editorial fiat. Or possibly marketing fiat, or possibly business deal fiat. That part's pretty unclear to us. Uh, listeners, if any corporate of you know fiat. more. Yes, corporate fiat of some sort. So they had added new members to the X-Men. Uh, Xavier was gone. Cyclops and Jean were off in Alaska doing other stuff. There was maybe going to be a new dream. But then... But then we get to what, what, what the hunt for Xavier marks kind of the middle of, which is a rapid reversion to the status quo. Totally. When Excalibur ended, Nightcrawler and Shadowcat came back to the X-Men for the first time in many years, and Colossus came back for the first time in fewer, but still, you know, some time. That brought us back to a much more traditional 70s, 80s X-Men lineup. So by this time, also, two of the three new members of the team had been written out. Um, but of Marrow, Cecilia Reyes, and Maggot, only Marrow remains. Also, Professor X was still gone, and it looks like we're now at the story where that's being remedied also. But before we get to that, let's talk about what happened previously on X-Men. With, as we mentioned, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus back from the now-disbanded Excalibur, the X-Men are looking a lot more like their Bronze Age incarnation. Save for the aforementioned missing Professor X. See, he had turned into the megavillain Onslaught, thanks to the combination of a lifetime of frustration and a miniature Magneto-hate goblin he absorbed. Long story. You can listen to that in the Onslaught episodes. After being removed from Onslaught, or having Onslaught removed from him, or generally disassociating with Onslaught, and losing his telepathy, Xavier was taken into custody by the anti-mutant group Operation Zero Tolerance, then working with the U.S. government. Operation Zero Tolerance was defeated, but Xavier was still missing, and despite their best efforts, the X-Men have thus far had no luck in finding him. Which brings us to The Hunt for Xavier. Starting with Uncanny X-Men number 362, The Hunt for Xavier Part 1, Meltdown. No relation to that miniseries we really love. Yeah, no, that's good. This issue is written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Art Tiber and Tim Townsend, colored by Liquid and graphics, apparently, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Hearing the creative team makes me even more frustrated with this issue, because by, by all reckoning, this should be great. It should. And again, we shouldn't say this is like the nadir of X-Men. Uh, we'll get to that story sometime later. It's just that after such a strong showing from Siegel and Kelly, this six-part story, three chapters in Uncanny X-Men interlaced with three chapters in Adjectiveless X-Men, it feels kind of rushed and incoherent. And it seems strange for a story that could have been told in a much shorter amount of time, a much lower number of issues, 
to still feel rushed. I think part of it is just how much is getting crammed into those issues. I know, and it it feels like the filler has almost outpaced the space it's supposed to fill. And it's still beautiful filler. I mean, we have Chris Pacello on art. That said, when a script is less tight, Pacello's art gets a little confusing and hard to follow. So it's a weird one, but we're going to talk through all of this. We're going to start out in Nebraska, in a field, on a farm. And if you're familiar with X-Men, you know that nothing good ever happens in Nebraska. In this case, in a field, on a farm, we see Pyro, the pyrokinetic member of the Brotherhood of Mutants, of Freedom Force, the guy who's had the legacy virus for a number of years, I believe since 1993's comics. He's out here setting everything on fire and ranting about how he won't take him, and he is in control of everyone, uh, the he being a mysterious individual, not Pyro himself. He's also demanding to see Charles Xavier, which is a problem given that nobody knows where Xavier is. So none of this is great, especially with anti-mutant fervor at an all-time, at this point, high. So Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D., he's leading S.H.I.E.L.D. again, he was dead for a while, he got better, it was a whole thing. He, he does this about as frequently as Helicarrier's crash. Which is to say, absolutely never, not even once in the history of the multiverse. Star, caption, okay a lot of times. Fury has brought in his old buds in the X-Men to try to take care of this. He figures they're more qualified, they know Pyro, and maybe they can uh, take care of this before a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents get burned to death or whatever. And of course, one of the side effects of the legacy virus is that it dials mutants' powers up to 11, so Pyro is much, much more destructive and much, much less in control than usual, meaning this is an unusually dangerous situation and one where it's especially appropriate to call in the superheroes. Uh, point of pedantry, the legacy virus has been written very inconsistently, and I believe that the explanation we get is that the fact that the legacy virus makes some people's powers amp up and cancels out those powers in other people and gives some people big boils and other people don't have those boils, it's because there are multiple kinds of the legacy virus. Which, you know, as we've learned over the last few years, yes, yes, viruses definitely do that. Viruses definitely mutate. Well, as we learned long ago, and as has been the case with AIDS since long before AIDS was the legacy virus. Sure, sure. I'm just saying um, I think that's especially fresh in all of our minds these days. So, um, yes, Pyro has the version of the legacy virus that makes his powers get real, real powerful. Bacello draws all this in such a Bacello fashion. Like I said, great art overall. But it's almost like he's getting more Bacello. Like how in Twin Peaks Season 3, David Lynch was like, hey, I bet I could make this Twin Peaks show a little lynchier without realizing that he was the one that made it in the first place. Everyone's just so blocky and huge. Logan's arms are almost as wide as his chest, and and Nightcrawler's features are stretched out like his skin, and I kind of love it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, I mean, one of the things about that I like about Pacello's extremely exaggerated forms is the characters have really, really distinct silhouettes, which is something that you see disappearing during during this era and following years, especially when everyone looks like their mus- their movie counterparts, which is to say, like, six feet tall and, you know, realistic build. So it's kind of a welcome break. It's really fun. I completely agree. So they all head out there, and of course, they're talking a lot about Professor X, since that's the person that Pyro's demanding to see. And Mero, who's the new member of the team at this point, and who is especially ornery given her extremely complicated, terrible past— She's really skeptical about, like, this reverence that everybody speaks of Xavier with. Well, there are a few reasons for that. One of them is that she's generally skeptical and scornful of pretty much everything. But one that she specifically brings up is that Xavier was aware of the Morlocks and did jack shit to help them. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So this this big sort of mutant messiah savior figure who everyone else reveres has never been that to her and has rather explicitly not been that while having the capacity to be that. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting here as well, because she does really see Angel, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, as a sort of messianic, savior, beautiful figure. But 
he almost died fighting to protect the Morlocks. Like, he was right there, literally, in the tunnel. So I could see how she could see him and this lofty Professor X that she's never met as being in very different categories. Well, an angel is relevant to the Morlocks only in context of one specific incident. He's not, like, a continual backbeat who randomly showed up in their tunnels dying or had, you know, various encounters with him and then was like, yeah, I'm just going to go back to my mansion now. Although that is technically kind of what Angel did, but... It's totally what Angel did. You know, with a brief pit stop, uh, losing his wings, almost dying, and getting turned into the Horseman of Death. I guess it was complicated. Remember that time Callisto kidnapped him and quoted Barbarella a bunch? I will never forget. Uh, Sidebar, I got to see Barbarella on the big screen, like, I don't know, a year or so ago. And goddamn, that movie's a delight. A bizarre, bizarre delight. It, It is what it is. So this is still firmly within continuity, and the Excalibur folks are still relatively recently on the team. And we do get some good character development here. Storm, of course, is leading the team. She's been leading the X-Men for quite a while at this point, since Cyclops uh, left the team during Operation Zero Tolerance. And Nightcrawler's thinking about this, because remember, he was the leader of Excalibur for about half the team's history, um, you know, when it wasn't Captain Britain. And so he was thinking maybe he could lead the X-Men when he came back, but seeing Storm direct people around, handle things so competently and calmly, he's like, nah, nah, I'm good. She's the one. An important learning experience for everyone who's ever wanted to lead the X-Men is that Storm is better at it. Pretty much, pretty much. Nightcrawler didn't even have to get the hell beaten out of him in the danger room by Storm the way that Cyclops did that one time. That said, what do you think about the way Nightcrawler's written at this point? Because he really was extremely competent. He was the leader of Excalibur in a very decisive fashion for a long, long time. Does he seem different personality-wise since he's rejoined the X-Men? A little bit, but I think that difference makes sense. As you said, he's gone from between two very, very different roles, and especially in in the case of the X-Men, gone back to one that was was, you know— established before a lot of character development so if you if, if you think about it i mean we've we've talked about you know the, the analogy of, of going back to your high school bedroom and i i think he's he's falling into he's falling back into into old dynamics that's true yeah and i think in that context that really works for me i mean between him colossus and kitty they're all a little different but i don't think any of them are out of character it's just that different facets of their personality are coming back so you could see it as regression or yeah you could see it as what you were just describing jay just kind of going back to your high school bedroom and starting to act a little more like your high school self so the the x-men are mostly busy saving civilians although a few of them uh, storm sends a, a few of them off to to take down pyro while i believe she marrow nightcrawler and rogue um rescue rescue the locals because the some of the fires have have spread from fields to towns and we get some more character continuity development here colossus wonders a little awkwardly if the legacy virus is the earth trying to rid itself of mutant parasites which i think he basically just says to give gambit a chance to talk very vaguely about how parasites are the worst oh right gambit was there i totally forgot that gambit was there you forget gambit gambit heard because Gambit plays a much more significant role in, in the um, X-Men story. True, true. But Gambit's thinking about parasites uh, because, of course, he's got that weird green gaseous lady that we mentioned in the uh, cold open possessing him, kind of, or inhabiting him and threatening to murder everyone he loves if he doesn't stay loyal to her, whatever that means. There's an elementary school named after her. Mary Purcell? Well, I, presumably a different Mary Purcell, but yeah, it, it came up when I searched for her name. Oh, that's not quite as good as the villain in that one Wolverine vampire story having a metal band named after him, but still pretty good. I mean, I think it's funnier. <laughs> that's true. Oh, yeah, what's your school named after? Oh, you know, a famous educator. Oh, you know, somebody who was mayor of this town. Oh, you know, a green gaseous lady that threatened to murder everyone Gambit loved. Yeah, no, there there have been, I, the, I, the other thing that came up were bios of of like a bunch of different mary purcells it's apparently a relatively common name although this makes me wonder i mean we know claremont had a habit of naming a lot of his characters after real people like madeline Pryor. maddie Pryor was a real person she was a musician so i wonder if i don't know siegel or kelly or whoever uh 
or actually could it be even Fabian Nicieza. I think he writes the Gambit series that we learn more about her in. But if one of them was like super into one of those actual Marys Purcell. Or attended Mary Purcell Elementary or any number of other options. Oh, God, it all comes down to Mary Purcell, all of it, the entire Marvel Universe. Like, there's that snow globe thing in St. Elsewhere. No, this is the Mary Purcell-averse. I thought it was the Franklin Richards-verse. Well, you would think that, because that's what Mary Purcell wants you to think. I think you're vastly overestimating the influence of Mary Purcell. Huh, yeah, whatever, sheeple. So, as far as the actual meat and potatoes of the issue... The X-Men rescue some people, they fight Pyro, and the rescues are just... This is such a weird thing to say. It's like damning with faint praise. It's competent superhero stuff. But the thing is, with X-Men, it's a soap opera. We always get that kind of character development and conflict and backstory and everything, like, weaved into all the action scenes. And I mean, there's there's a little of that. Like, uh, the X-Men are able to use Marrow's annoyance at rescuing humans to illustrate what Xavier's taught them, and to make it very clear that those lessons would be really good for Marrow to have. But for the most part, it's just like, oh, right, Nightcrawler can't, you know, teleport blind because he might teleport into a rock. Or Marrow is sharp and can cut open buses and Storm can zap things. Like, it's it's so hard to describe, but it really feels like one of those old Doctor Who episodes where stuff is always happening, but it's mostly just people running back and forth in quarries. So I disagree with you. Um, yeah, I actually, I actually think that the scene gives us really good marrow, marrow character development. Uh, the part about Xavier, or the actual physical actions of the whole thing, both because we see Marrow participating. Like we, this the team, her relationship to the rest of the team and to the team dynamic has really shifted, and this is one of the first times that we actually see that at play. Okay, okay, I, I think I see where you're going, but but tell me more. The way she's working with other characters, especially Storm, the way she's actively taking initiative within the fight, and I mean the fact that Storm is the character with whom she's she's actively cooperating, I think feels is is a very, very significant shift. And the the conversation she has and the way that she frames what she's doing, because grumpy she is about rescuing humans, she's also very open to doing it. That's a really good point. And that is something we've seen with Marrow a fair bit. Like whether she's happy or sad or whatever, she's still going to threaten to rip out people's organs. That's just her way. So what she says and how she feels and what she does, those aren't necessarily the same. Exactly. I do like the one person who is finally able to make her understand a bit why Xavier is somebody people care so much about. That, of course, being Gambit. He's just a man. Good, I knew I'd find someone with some sense if I kept looking. Didn't say I hate him. He done right by me, so I can't speak against him. If he hadn't took a chance on me, I'd have been a lost soul. Heck, maybe I still am. But he's still just human. I'd risk my life to help him, because he'd do the same for me. Or you. That's what some respect, no? Is this the first time we've really seen Gambit and Marrow interact? I mean, Gambit's just recently joined the team, so certainly one of the first times. And yeah, actually, I kind of like the two of them as a pair. They're both outsiders. They both have very dark pasts. I don't think it's come up yet that um, Gambit was indirectly responsible for everyone Marrow loved dying. That'll be interesting if that well, comes up. Well, and specifically for rescuing her from the mutant massacre that is a good point that was gambit himself that rescued little kid sarah that is responsible for her still being alive ah well this runs almost over so i genuinely don't know if we'll uh, get more of that in in other runs but one thing i love about this issue the fight with pyro is rad because chris Pacello can just go wild like pyro's got these upgraded powers and Bocello really uses that fact. Uh, Pyro creates this giant four-skulled flame skeleton monster that attacks Colossus, and it's metal as hell. Uh, he also makes a sexy fire lady to kiss Gambit, which somehow does not burn him, which is good. Okay, that part's really confusing. Like, initially I thought this was Mary Purcell, the green gas lady, but no, it's a lady made of fire that Pyro created to kiss Gambit. Is this a kink thing? I don't know. Pyro seems way too distracted to be focusing on that. Gambit's so charming, even Defire want to kiss him. Well, I can't argue with that. Eventually, they manage to defeat Pyro with a combination of a fire extinguisher, a fire break that Wolverine made because he knows manly nature things, and, and a real hard punch to the face. I bet Wolverine and Ron Swanson would be friends. 
they would either be friends or they would really hate each other, one of the two. Because remember, one of Wolverine's core traits is that while he is a gruff, taciturn dude, he also gives people unsolicited relationship advice constantly. Ooh, maybe ooh, maybe he would be friends with the other Ron. Oh yeah, other Ron. Yeah, the Sam Elliott Ron. Man, that was such a great show. Anyway, a uh, plot twist with very little foreshadowing. It turns out Pyro wasn't actually fighting the X-Men. Um, he was running away from a robot guy that was chasing him, and the X-Men couldn't see the robot guy because the robot guy was in the middle of all the fire. And Pyro manages to incinerate the robot with the last of his energy, so they can't get much information out of it other than its, its last words, which are identify, capture, catalog. Now, we, of course, know exactly who that is based on those last words. This has got to be one of the bodies of Cerebro. Yeah, yeah, because the now sentient, now embodied Cerebro was, of course, the villain of the big anniversary arc we just had in Adjectiveless and Uncanny X-Men. But I have a question. Okay, so Pyro was running away from the robot, and the robot was in the fire. Okay, Mm. fine. I'll allow it. But then why did Pyro make a sexy fire lady to kiss Gambit in the middle of that? How does that in any way, shape, or form help Pyro in his flight from the robot guy? I told you, it, it wasn't Pyro. Gambit just stat Charmin. Oh, that was just the fire itself. It yeah. was, um, if you will, hot for Gambit. Precisely. Okay, okay, you know, you get a no prize. A no prize that's on fire and sexy. So, um, anyway, yeah, that, that happens. Uh, the robot guy's gone and incinerated. Pyro is severely injured, um, and the X-Men are very confused, as are we. Meanwhile, Moira McTaggart mails her Cerebro unit to Cecilia Reyes. Uh, yeah, yeah, so Moira doesn't have an X-Team on her island anymore, and the X-Men are minus a Cerebro because Bastion took, like, everything from the X-Mansion back in Operation Zero Tolerance. Well, and then Cerebro went sentient and tried to kill them. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, true, um, because it escaped from Bastion. So, yeah, Cecilia isn't on the X-Men these days, which makes me sad because I loved her time on the team. She's open to private practice in Salem Center, New York, which is kind of surprising because, I mean, she used to work in a hospital and she couldn't get a job back there. I would think that opening a private practice would be actually way harder. I mean, I think it depends on what you're trying to do and what your strengths are. I I would imagine, for instance, that it's a lot easier to go into business yourself than to get hired at a top-tier emergency room as a doctor. Yeah, especially when everyone's prejudiced against you for being a mutant. But um, still, way to open a practice in, like, a couple days, from what I can tell. Cecilia is pretty high-strung. She is a go-getter. I mean, she might have joined an existing group practice. That's possible. That's possible. But it's really fun seeing her here. Like, she's just talking down a scared kid as the kid gets her first uh, shot ever. She's still Cecilia, so she's not, like, playful and fun or anything, but she does have an excellent bedside manner when she's not dealing with the X-Men's bullshit. So, the Cerebro unit ends up at Cecilia's clinic because they tried to deliver to the X-Mansion, no one was home, and this was the backup address, because I guess you can do that. After the X-Men pick up Cerebro, Kitty is able to use it, because this is this is one of those Cerebro units that anyone can use, to locate Charles Xavier. And she does. She locates him, in fact, twice. There's a Charles Xavier in San Francisco, and there's a Charles Xavier in Tajikistan. Uh, yeah, that's a made-up place in, in Russia. Um, but before they can find out more, an outside source supercharges Cerebro to explode, which isn't really explained. It just sort of happens and is not followed up on, like a lot of things in this story. So, it is time to split up the team into two and to find Professor Xavier before another one of those robot guys does. Which brings us to X-Men number 82, The Hunt for Xavier Part 2, The Hunt for Charlie. Written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by John Dell, and the superlatively surnamed Jesse Delperdang, colored by Richard Eisenhoff, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And we st- our first stop is the Glaciers of Tajikistan. Our team here is Storm, Rogue, Colossus, and Gambit, the latter of whom are, as we open, plummeting to certain death. Yeah, uh, Rogue catches Colossus as they fall. Storm uses her elemental hail to blast the ice below Gambit as he falls into soft powder, so Gambit lands safely. Which is kind of dubious physics-wise, but you know what? Sure. I liked it better when Maggot was falling and he sent his maggots down to, like, chew up the ground so it was soft by the time he fell on it. 
I thought they just chewed a hole in it for him to fall into. Oh, I thought they made it soft, like a, like a ball pit, like an asphalt ball pit. Anyway, even a soft landing might be a little better than Gambit deserves. In Colossus's words, The lesson for today, Toverish. Next time, your extremely weighty teammate is doing reconnaissance on an icy precipice. Do not leap on his back and yell, chicken fight. Yeah, what the notarized hell, Gambit? Okay, Gambit would never do that. Instead, he would say, combat de poulet, because it sounds cooler in French. Does it? I think so. Poulet. It's a badass word. Actually, the fall turns out to be fortuitous. Um, so it drops them at the bottom of a crevasse containing what appears to be a really ornate Russian Orthodox church cut out of the ice of the adjoining glacier. It's so pretty. It's really pretty. It's, it's making me all excited again because I get to go to the ice hotel next month. Oh, nice! That's awesome! The one, the one in Quebec, not the one in, in somewhere Scandinavian. Um, but still. Still? Ice hotel? I'm pretty sure the Ice Hotel does not have, have the, the fancy onion domes, but that's okay. You know, take what you can get. So Rogue flirts with Gambit, who pushes her away, and when questioned, tells Storm that it's still too soon, which is a lie because it's actually the whole Mary Purcell situation. Colossus takes this opportunity to sidle up to Rogue with some advice that, in retrospect, is incredibly ironic, given the circumstances under which Rogue and Gambit will eventually be wed. I am a man who cannot keep his tongue when he sees a heart in distress, and the scoundrel causing it. He is a free spirit, rogue. He will never commit. You would do better trying to catch the wind. Yeah, bro, your bride's gonna leave you at the altar, and Gambit and Rogue gonna steal your wedding, and then get their own ongoing? It was so good. I mean, I feel bad for Colossus, but I, I love that. I love that the wedding is all disastrous, and Rogue and Gambit are like, eh. Ioana, everything's here. It's it's very them, and it works very well. Now, though, they come up against a giant wall, which Gambit blasts through while Storm is still briefing the team, and beyond which are a bunch of frozen, terrified dead monks. And another wall, but this one of a sort of semi-tangible membrane. It's 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 a, a barrier, ambiguously defined. And their approach to this barrier yields another set of, of Cerebro-style captions as they're each identified. And this is so fucking cool. Like, I have my gripes with this arc. This part is rad as shit. So the team goes through the barrier, but then they just end up in this, like, topsy-turvy, nonsensical, impossible hell, the narration tells us. There is the sound of a child taking a deep, determined breath. And then the world stops making fish. And the art is very different. Like, it's still the same artist. I mean, it's still Adam Kubert, but everything is more painted rather than traditional pencils and inks and colors, and everybody's all different sizes, and the background is all sketchy with a regular checkerboarding going everywhere. And, like, there are these visual motifs coming out of the impossibly twisted characters, like lightning bolts are waving out of Storm, and stars are pouring out of Colossus's mouth as he gets sick, and Rogue's flight trail is piercing playing card after playing card as, like, everybody stretches out and catches on fire and gets sliced into strips and falls apart. It's so awesomely nightmarish. I love it. Like, but, like, amusement park nightmare. Now, this is really disorienting, understandably, for everyone, with one exception, because Rogue is pretty much fine. Truth is, sugar, once you've had three or four personalities at a time running in your skull, altered states of reality become second nature. Now, all of this is the work of Nina, uh, the Manite kid Xavier met when he was a prisoner of Operation Zero Tolerance, and we should probably recap who Nina is. Right. So there was a one shot called Onslaught Epilogue a couple of years before this, a long time ago. And in it, while Professor X was imprisoned by Bastion, he was also imprisoned with this little girl named Nina, who had like giant eyes. She was clearly not a normal human. She seems to be a mutant. She's actually something called a manite. We'll get to that later. Uh, those are big deals in uh, Adam Warren's Livewires series. 
uh, her powers themselves, they're very ill-defined. Telepathy, telekinesis, teleportation, creating items out of thin air, whatever. But she called Charles Xavier Charlie, and she was very nice to him. And Xavier helped her escape when OCT was going to execute her. Specifically, he helped her escape with the aid of a woman who she's still traveling with, that being Renee uh, Makeham. Makeham or Majcomb? I'm not really sure how you're supposed to pronounce that. Yeah, it's spelled M-A-J-C-O-M-B. Um, and Renee is a Genosian biogeneticist who ended up leading a rebellion in Genosha. She first appeared in the Blood, Blood Ties crossover with the Avengers. Years ago, yeah. So they're on the other side of this, um, and the X-Men thankfully eventually work their way out of this bizarre nightmare. Specifically, they discover that the way out is to follow their hearts because big feelings short-circuit the illusions. So they all feel really hard. Um, Rogue is just thirsty as hell for Gambit. Storm focuses on her love for the X-Men. Colossus is, he finds at his core, defined by loss, and specifically the loss of his sister Liana. And Gambit by fear, and at the moment, the fear of the green gassy lady who half-possesses him. I like this, just distilling the X-Men down to what their deal is right now. Desire, love, loss, and fear. That kind of works, actually. And with the aid of their raw feelings, Nina works out that the people she's attacking aren't the monster that she's trying to keep out, and she works out that she's hurting them, so she stops. And um, she ex they meet Nina and, and Renee, and, and Nina explains that someone named Charlie helps her keep the monsters away. This part is confusing, because she mentions that it's not the real Charlie with her, uh, so he makes mistakes, but he's her friend and helps her think about what to do. Now, the last time we saw Nina and Professor X together in Onslaught Epilogue, she mentioned that she could help restore his telepathy, and it almost seemed like she was sort of hanging on to it for him at that point when he said no it's really unclear what's going on here maybe we just misread it but both of us are confused right both of us are very confused because i thought that she was talking about what turned out to also be the monster she was trying to keep out which was one of the cerebro bodies maybe i'm not really sure but regardless uh renee and nina are doing okay they've been safe behind this barrier but unfortunately, now that the X-Men have X-Factored their way through it, albeit X-Factor on a lot of drugs, the way is clear, and here comes the bad guy. It's Cerebro, and, and it's Cerebro as we saw Cerebro when they were leading the fake X-Men, basically. So the body made out of blue energy. Although now Cerebro has a metal skull and spine and um, some kind of military cap and is wearing what look like football pads made out of a car. And like the military cap has those distinctive cables coming out of the, the circle at the forehead that the Cerebro helmet does. This is actually a really cool design. Like the skull and spine, which I think are maybe made of metal, it's, it's hard to say, just make it look so macabre and creepy. It actually reminds me a lot of Cerebrax from recent issues of X-Force, like the rogue Cerebro helmet that would just clamp itself onto people and rip off their heads and stuff. Yeah. Oh, it was excellently nightmarish. Uh, recent X-Force has been super gross and fun. Not as gross as recent Wolverine, though. Jesus Christ, so gory! That brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 363, The Hunt for Xavier Part 3, When You're Unwanted. Written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Art Tiber and Tim Townsend, colored by Liquid and Graphics, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Um, there's this weird little bit at the beginning in Girardelli Square uh, in California, where the book's creative team uh, is debating with each other the best kinds of chocolate before Cerebro crashes into a bay and, like, starts the story. I always love that when you get to see creators just drawing and writing themselves into books, just doing normal shit before something happens. It's always fun. It always kind of makes me wonder what they're actually doing if they're, when they're within the Marvel Universe, whether they're, you know, writing... They're, they're assumed to be writing nonfiction comics or whether they just all lead entirely different lives but happen to have come into contact with each other in this in this you know, disparate world. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we know that Captain America was a comic uh, artist and we know that the Fantastic Four in universe have a comic written about them. So 
I want to read that series. Marvel, write something about that, please. But this isn't the Cerebro we saw before. This is Cerebrite Unit Beta. And it looks a little different. Like, it's got these sort of muscles made of a bunch of metallic ridged tubes, the kind that you see all the time, with the armor over that. It's much more physical and technological, but still clearly the same design with the same silly helmet. So as Cerebrite Unit Beta emerges from the bay onto land, the first thing it sees is a toad. Partially because Bacello fucking loves drawing frogs and toads so much, he just does all the damn time. And partially to segue into the character toad of the Brotherhood of Mutants. Back in his old jestery costume and speaking in nonsense rhymes, and passing an apple to Professor Xavier. In Alcatraz. What? Uh, yeah, yeah, so Alcatraz has been, um, uh emptied out for maintenance of some sort, and so now Toad uh, appears to be keeping Professor X prisoner there, since, you know, it was available. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, big deal seeing Professor X, but first, Toad. This is a little strange, because when we've seen Toad, really, for the last many, many, many years— He's been very different. He really tried to start a solo villain career. He became very academic and poetic and megalomaniacal. He had his own theme park for a while. He did have his own theme park for a while, that's right. Most recently, we saw him in Generation X trying to take over Emma Frost's compound during Onslaught when she telepathically made her students forget their pasts and dress up in weird costumes. It was a whole thing. Uh, I guess we can be left to assume that Emma really messed with his mind, and that's why he seems to have such mental health stuff going on right now. I don't know. Now, the X-Men are also here. They are cloaking their plane. Um, That's the the Aurora, the plane they stole from fake Xavier in the recent Cape Citadel hijinks. Uh, Fun fact, the Aurora is the name for the SR-91, the Air Force's theoretical secret hypersonic follow-up to the SR-71, the Blackbird. So this is like, you know, the Blackbird, but more, which I guess kind of makes sense that they stole it from Cerebro, who was masquerading as Professor X, who's like Professor X, but more technological. It wouldn't be X-Men without going into way too much detail about aircraft. So who's on the San Francisco team? Well, in San Francisco, we have Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Shadowcat, and Marrow. And they cloak their plane after they land. They prepare to head into town. And we have another weirdly forced segue. There are a lot of these. Like, Toad passes an apple to Xavier, then we catch a Nightcrawler eating an apple. In this case, Wolverine yells about smelling something rotten, which takes us to Cerebrite Unit Beta chasing after a random lady who happens to be a, a latent mutant, because, like, that's a rotten thing to do, I guess. We know that uh, Kelly and Siegel both love these segues, but, and this is me saying this, sometimes they can be a little much. We don't even know what Wolverine smelled that was rotten. A fish. Just a gross, smelly, rotten fish that happened to be there in the park. Someone had gotten it at a fishmonger and they were taking it home to cook, but then they got distracted and they dropped it and they didn't realize until they were, um, they'd gone a ways that their fish was no longer there and they just never went back for it. Well, that's really sad. They they really wanted fish to eat, and now they won't have fish, and they'll be sad, and they'll just eat a sadness meal. No, it's okay. They had other fish. This was just this was just one of the fi- one of the many fish that they were taking home. That's part of why they didn't miss it. Oh, okay, okay. So they'll just be like a tiny bit disappointed. But that was several days ago, and no one's found it. Oh no! Hence the smelly, smelly fish that led Wolverine to segue into Cerebrite Beta chasing a lady. Please enjoy more of my fanfiction at archiveofourown.org. What's the tag for that one? Non-canonical fish. Have you heard my new band? Anyway, the X-Men rustle up some clothes to blend into Berkeley, which is described by the narration as... The Bay Area's bohemian hotbed of student anarchy. Which reminds me of nothing more than the time that the Walden Puddle people convinced Roland Headley that they were just like a wild drug-fueled 24-hour orgy. Come for the fish fanfiction, stay for the Doonesbury references. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. Uh, we call it fish fic. In the business. <laughs> so, it's kind of a shame that the X-Men don't run into X-Force here since they're San Francisco-based, but you know, there's enough going on in these issues, it's fine. And what happens next as far as them getting these outfits is very unclear. 
Kitty phases her hand through a bench to, I think, take a homeless person's bag and then pass that person a bill. But like, okay, it looked to me like she was stealing money out of his wallet. But she was just talking in her thought bubbles about how she would never steal and she was offended the X-Men thought she would. See, I assume that that was like an ironic juxtaposition. I, I don't know, but it's weird because later she's looking at a Star of David pendant that she really likes, and Nightcrawler, in his newfound disguise that I guess was stolen from that bag, finds some money in the pocket and pays for it to buy it for her. And so, like, did she just steal money from a person and clothing, and then there was also money in the clothing? Or did she give money to a person, and uh, then it turned out he already had money in his clothing, and so it's kind of a wash, and now he doesn't have clothing? That's not really a wash. That's definitely a negative for him. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, there's no upside. There's no upside. No, no, there's really not. I love Chris Pacello's art, but sometimes when a script is less clear, and there's a lot in these scripts that's less clear, it's kind of hard to tell what the hell's going on. Yeah. I do really like Marrow wearing her trench coat and uh, fedora disguise. That is a classic, and she actually looks super good in it. Yeah, she pulls that off very, very well. Um... Now, there's no sign of Xavier except for, for Logan scenting, uh, what was it? The stench of blood, sweat, and fears. Wow. The dialogue's actually really fun here. As they head into the building and Kitty sees the chaos inside, she says it. Looks like somebody threw a war and everybody came. Uh, outside, we also get some good marrowness as some uh, nearby young Berkeley anarchists, I guess, compliment her eyebrow piercing, and so she just rips bones out of her face to offer to them and freak them out. She cannot accept a compliment well. Or she accepts compliments brilliantly. One of those. Well, there's no Professor X here, so off they go to yet another of Logan's very large collection of old best friends who have never been mentioned before. This one is an unaging apothecary in Chinatown named Black Crane, uh, complete with a gnarly frog in a jar prominently displayed in his shop because, you know, Chris Bichello loves frogs. Uh, But this is fun. Like, there are all these little touches into Black Crane's world. Uh, The customer overhearing the conversation that he has with the X-Men apparently is a guy that sells cheap jewelry at the wharf, but is also the best monkey-style Shaolin master alive. I I love that. I always love when you get these little glimpses into what's clearly a much larger world that you know you'll never really learn about. Until someone dredges it up for a Wolverine story? Yeah, that'll probably happen. But Black Crane does direct them to Alcatraz, where Waiting for the X-Men is not just Toad, but an all-new, all-different Brotherhood of Mutants. They are not all-new and all-different. There there are several old and same. Well, they're described that way. That is true. They are the somewhat new, slightly more different Brotherhood of Mutants. So, from the old guard, we've got Blob and Toad. But there's also Post, a former Herald of Onslaught and villain in the Cable book. He's sort of a robotified guy covered in rocks made of circuitry with big guns sticking out of him. Fun fact, Post's wallet name is Kevin. And also Mimic, Calvin Rankin. Wait a damn minute. He was best buds with Excalibur like five minutes ago. He was at Captain Britain and Megan's wedding and he was like one of their best buds. He was at the bachelor party. Well... And Kitty brings this up, and he says, well, circumstances changed, and there was a compelling reason for me to be here. They they fight, of course, and it's a surprisingly even fight. Like, the Brotherhood are really working together as a team in ways that they never have before. And that, as it turns out, is because they have been being trained by someone who knows what he's doing. Yeah. They aren't here to fight or stop the X-Men. They're here to protect Professor X. He's not imprisoned in Alcatraz. He's being protected in Alcatraz. Uh, apparently. And I guess they've been with him for a while. I guess he summoned them over here. Maybe this is why Pyro wanted to get to him. Pyro is a former member of the Brotherhood. That's never fully explained. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole thing. And they're hiding him specifically from Cerebro, who, of course, at this moment attacks, you know, smashes down the wall like it's an X factor. And that ends the issue. And that ends the stuff we're going to cover in in this episode, because, again, like, weirdly little progress is made, but a lot happens in all of these issues. Much ado about nothing, basically. 
and it's still fun. Like, you know, we've certainly highlighted a lot of good character interactions, a lot of good character development, even some really fun art, but it's just such a shift from what we've seen before. We still have some excellent creators on here. It's just really unfortunate. I It makes me very much want to see what Siegel and Kelly could have done if they'd been able to go with their original plan instead of reverting everything to the mean of the X-Men as they were in the ambiguous 70s and 80s. Now, we obviously have a lot of questions about what's going on here, but for the moment, we're going to shift to some of yours. Play Comics asks on Tumblr, Oh, hey. Which three X-Men would you take on a road trip specifically to cause the most chaos at holiday gatherings without having your targets guess your intentions? That's a very specific question and a good one. Quentin Quire, Jamie Madrox, and Rachel Summers. The first two for obvious reasons and Rachel for her unstoppable disaster gay aura. Oh, that's that's legit. Although I feel like if you bring Quentin Quire into a party, everybody's going to be real suspicious from about moment two. I mean, he's a telepath, though. He can theoretically work around that. Oh, that's true. Snappy dresser, too. Also, this is me, and showing up with random angry punks at family holidays is entirely reasonable. Ah, so this is if you were taking X-Men on a road trip to holiday gatherings. You specifically, Jay Edidin. Yes, I, I personally. That's that's how I took it, anyway. Oh, okay. Well, for my three, I think those are all good answers, but I'm going to say three different ones. I'm going to say, first off, Prodigy, because his mutant power is to gain the skills and knowledge of everyone around him, but he's also a really nice guy. So, like, everybody would feel less special because whatever made them unique, this other guy would be good at that too, but they wouldn't really be able to yell at him because he was super sweet, and so they would just get vaguely sad, and that would be unfortunate. Uh, Also, Hope Summers. Because, as we've seen in multiple crossovers, everyone would immediately be convinced that she was key to, like, whatever their agendas and plans and hopes and dreams were. And so they would start a big fight over either getting her on their side or kicking her out or following her through time and committing genocide multiple times. At which point she'd pull out an enormous gun. Probably true, which does make a party awkward. Lastly, Longshot. Because um, anybody interested in man would be, like, super into him, even if he wasn't flirting at all, uh, which would cause all kinds of, like, jealousy and competition and and awkwardness. Ooh, I thought of another one. Yeah? You'd bring Angel and he'd hit on your teenage cousins. Oh, God. Oh, God. And hopefully he wouldn't have sex with them in the sky above their parents. Hopefully. Fucking Warren Kenneth Worthington III. You are ashamed, actual hawks. Hawks would totally have sex with you in the sky above your mother. I don't want to have sex with a hawk. Especially not above my mother. Smudgetune asks on Tumblr, After seeing the successes and failures of pre-fall Krakoa, what do you want to see in post-fall mutant society? And how would that relate to what you want to see on post-this-hellscape queer society? Good questions. Um, so... I feel like in Krakoa, isolationism and separatism... Uh, have turned out to be maybe not the best idea, at least not taken to the extreme that they were. Um, They were certainly a factor in the demonization of mutants after what happened at the most recent Hellfire Gala, which has led to literally the worst anti-mutant hysteria ever in the Marvel Universe, we can can safely say. So I feel like definitely more engagement with non-mutants in both super ways and mundane ways after Fall of X would be a very, very good idea, in addition to just being, you know, nice. Also, leadership should be much less arbitrary and less centrally powerful than the Quiet Council, because that didn't work, like, at all, for a number of reasons. Jeez, guys, come on. Uh, In a more positive direction, celebration of difference rather than hiding that difference has been an incredibly uplifting, awesome, positive part of the Krakoan era. So uh, the support structures and allyship to make that a safe thing to do should very much stay and very much be a focus. Um, I don't know, the second part of the question... After this hellscape, I so I'm not really a person to speak as directly to that as, as some would be, but I think that last item sounds great, like normalizing difference and supporting the folks around you who are, are doing so. So in terms of this hellscape, and I, I should note, by the way, that there are hundreds, and I, I mean li- li- literal plural hundreds of pieces of anti-trans legislation that have been introduced in legislatures already in, in the first 18 days of 2024. Ugh. So, so this hellscape is feeling awful personal these days. Um, I feel that we should get our own sentient island. Sounds pretty handy. In terms of the 
post post mutant culture, I still want to see more persistent mutant specific subculture, but I want to see the way it interacts with and is is a part of of human cultures as well. Yeah, very much. Like that sort of melting pot thing could work really well with mutant culture being uh, interleaved with with human culture. I would love to see that. Mm, I don't want a melting pot though, because melting pot melting pot implies assimilation. Okay, I see what you're saying. So just sort of different subcultures uh, interacting with each other and bouncing off of each other, but still being like distinct and intact. Yeah, what I'm hoping comes out of the current hellscape, aside from again our own sentient continent, is well. I mean, survival is, is, is kind of the big one right now, but, um, I would love to see more intra queer and trans solidarity that again, wasn't contingent on assimilation. There's a long history of more conservative and more central organizations kind of throwing whoever doesn't assimilate or can't conform under the bus. I think the most a uh, persistent example of that is is the HRC's relationship to the trans community. But and and I'm really tired of it and I I feel like respectability queers really need to understand that licking that boot is not going to take it off their necks. Well said. So that within our own community on a larger scale what I would like to see is a larger scale acceptance and celebration of the fact that rights and humanity and dignity should not be contingent on again performance of res- of 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 conformist respectability but also sentient island but also the sentient island yeah we are a fully listener supported podcast and certain levels of support come with on air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts it's an oldie but a goodie here's the angry claremontian narrator what the hell, Andrew Moxon? You really think you can just add a random N to a real country's name to fictionalize it? I mean, George R. R. Martin at least changed York and Lancaster to Stark and Lannister, but this? What are you going to do next? Change Ken Liu to Knen Liu? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Norrist Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the hunt for Xavier continues. Despite the fact that they already found him. (laughs) 